Okay, guys, real talk. Sweet Vibes has been with us from day one, and we wouldn't be able to have this podcast or bring you these awesome guests if we didn't have amazing sponsors like them. So first, let me just say, go to www.sweetvibe.toys and enter the code WILDLOVE to get your discount code on all of the amazing vibrators and sex toys. I mean, who doesn't love to have an orgasm? It can be a part of your self-care every single day you know wake up have an orgasm have a great day have your coffee my favorite product right now is the perfect match I mean it's flexible it has 10 powerful settings all of these are under $50 they come in really cool colors so make sure you check them out and you know support this podcast support our sponsors and we'll keep bringing you great content okay guys I'm not lying when I say that this is and maybe my favorite podcast episode that we've done to date. We sit down with the famous, the one and only Dr. Chris Ryan. You've probably heard me talk about his book a billion times called Sex at Dawn because this is the first book that I've read that really opened my eyes to love, sex, and relationships. And it was also really triggering for me to read that book at that time in my life. And I know it's been a triggering book for some of you guys as well. But I also talk about a lot of the positives that came out and how that book changed my life. He wrote that book 10 years ago. He has a new book out called Civilized to Death. And we talk all about that. I hope you guys really enjoy this episode as much as we did. And if you do, please share it on social media or share it with your friends. We love to hear what you guys think. Much love. All right, Wednesday, we're back with one of our, once again, favorite people, but particularly our favorite person. It is. He's a particular specific favorite. And what I like to say about this guest is that he and his co-author a few years ago completely changed the cultural conversation about sex. No question. He also has a really sexy voice. He does. <laughs> Isn't that right? Chris Ryan. It's yes, just a fancy Chris microphone. <laughs> I don't know. It's I a think filter it's on you. The mic. I think it's, in, I think I don't it's know. intrinsic. Yep. I've had conversations with you without a microphone and it's still there. So. Oh, well, yeah. thank you. Thank you. Unfortunately, I think it's the sexiest <laughs> thing about me. <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't downplay your many um, good qualities like oh, that. Thank okay. You. So thank you. The first way that I met Chris Ryan Whitney is um, he, I read Sex at Dawn and I said, God damn it. Chris Ryan and Casilda Jetha wrote the book that I wanted to write. Ooh. And, and then I just began a process of bombarding them until, until, they, would until, they, <laughs> until they finally agreed to meet me at a restaurant downtown in New York City when they were there. And let me interview them. And it was one of the most fun conversations. It started with Chris being afraid that I was going to be a really hostile interviewer. Right, Chris? Well, you you particularly wanted to interview <laughs> Casilda, as I recall. <clears throat> and I'm yes. pretty protective of her uh, because... You know, English isn't her first language, and she's a very private person. And um, one of the sort of uh, the deals that we made uh, when she agreed to be co-author of the book was that she wouldn't do media because she really doesn't like that sort of, um, you know, aggressive questioning. And she's that's just not her vibe. 
So when you wrote to, to us and you're Absolutely. like, hey, I really want to interview you, particularly Casilda, you know, I think she's so important in which, you know, her as a doctor and being from Africa and having, you know, this multicultural background, it's, I'm really interested in digging into that. I thought, well, that's really great because uh, it sounds like this person appreciates how rich and interesting Casilda is. But on the other hand, uh, you know, New Yorker, best-selling author, eh, things could get dicey. So I was, <laughs> yeah, I felt kind of protective. But, you know, one or two cocktails into the evening, I figured you were okay. You, I, I proved my, uh, you know, just kind of admiration, I think, it be, which was really authentic and genuine and remains that way. I want you to just talk a little bit about what it's like to have co-authored Sex at Dawn and to kind of take in the influence that you've had. Because I always tell you and Casilda that Sex at Dawn didn't just change the cultural conversation around sex. You guys put non-monogamy in the sort of um, pop culture spotlight in a way that nobody was able to do since the 70s. And then you became, Sex at Dawn really became like one of the Bibles um, for consensually non-monogamous people. What is it like to have had that influence? What does it feel like from the inside? Uh, well, I, I don't know, to be honest. It's, it's I'm watching it from outside just like everyone else, you know? It's... It's a strange thing. I mean, I, I, it was hard to get used to people writing emails um, that were so personal and that they, they had such a deep personal connection to the book, you know, like, I mean, it came out 10 years ago, so it's been a while, but I remember one of the very first emails I got was very brief and it said, um, I'm a 65 year old widow uh, this is the most important book I've ever read. I wish I could live my life over. Mm, oh wow. my God. That's so big. Yeah. And, and I read that and I thought like people are having a connection to this book that I never could have anticipated, you know, and then people started sending me photos of themselves naked holding the book. And, you know, that became a thing <laughs> and I've got hundreds of those now. And, I met a woman in a bar in Portland and she asked me to sign her ass with a Sharpie. So it's, it's strange. <laughs> I'll say that. Life gets weird. Life gets weird <laughs> when you're like the rock star of consensual non-monogamy. <laughs> yeah, no question. I mean, that's how, that's how we were introduced to it. Aubrey and I was through reading Sex at Dawn. And I remember when I first read the book, which is also something I want to talk about with you. But when I first read the book, I was so threatened and triggered and like, what the fuck does this guy know? And of course, Aubrey's like, yeah, here, read this book, Whitney. And I'm like, oh, you're stupid too. Like, <laughs> I just couldn't, it was, it just challenged my foundation, right? So much that it was actually challenging for me to read. And then I actually really enjoyed it. And then obviously now I've been in a CNM relationship for eight years <laughs> and happily so. But I do want to talk about like, so people who read the book, you get beautiful, I'm sure, responses back like that 65-year-old woman who was just like, man, I really wish I could do this over again. But do you get messages? Because I know I do. I'll tell you that much. Do you get messages that are just like hate? 
Sure, sure. There's a lot of hostility. And that's why I said um, that I, I'm sort of watching it from outside, because I feel like what happens is that people have their own relationship with the book, and I'm separate from that. Um, and mm-hmm. so I kind of feel, you know, when I read a review or I get a letter saying, my God, this has changed my life. Thank you so much. I'm happy for that person, but I don't feel like I deserve any credit or anything. And similarly, mm-hmm. when someone's super angry and hostile, I also don't feel personally involved. I just feel like, okay, you, you're threatened by these ideas. You know, maybe you've had, you know, maybe your father left your mother and, and left a real trauma in your psyche and you're associating this with that. It has nothing to do with me, you know? So I don't feel compelled right. uh, to no. respond. Well, it's like the three of us write about the most personal thing that people do, which is, and the most personal thing they have, which yeah. is their sexuality. Um, and so it's to your point, Chris, it's like we're a Rorschach test for them, right? It's, it's not yeah. about us. It's about how they feel about sex and sexuality. And people feel so tremendously threatened, I have noticed, and I'm sure you have too, Whitney. Um, when you sort of rally data points, right? It's one thing to say, to write a book in which you say, um, you know, non-monogamy is a strategy that uh, is okay. I think it's quite another thing when you make a compelling case. There are ample data that show us that monogamy is really hard um, for human beings and is no more natural or right um, a social and sexual strategy or arrangement uh, than non-monogamy. So I think your book was doubly threatening to people, right? It wasn't just about sex, but it was sex in in a wrapper of of really good science. Well, thank you. Yeah, I... I tried to do that because I understood, of course, that if the book ever saw the light of day, there would be a lot of pushback. And so the scientific arguments needed to be pretty um, extensive and solid. It, it One thing, talking about responses that are surprising, I often see, because I have a, like a Google search for Sex at Dawn, so I see when somebody writes a blog or a review or whatever, and often I'll see something on Reddit, for example, where someone will say, oh, you should read Sex at Dawn, and then Someone will respond saying, don't you know that book's been debunked? Like every serious scientist in the world has said that's total <laughs> oh, pseudoscience. I get <clears> that too. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Go it's on. Debunked. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, on one level, I'm, I'm kind of perpetually tempted to just write a blog post or something, you know, something on Medium or whatever, pointing out that it actually hasn't been debunked and that there, as far as I know, haven't been any serious scientific challenges to the major theories or the major arguments in the book. Um, but the problem is right. like, once you enter into that fray, then it does become personal. And, you know, it, it, it puts me in a position that I don't enjoy being in. I don't like First of all, I don't like the conflict. And secondly, I've learned that you will never change anyone's mind. Ooh, you know, Whitney, that seems to speak so much to our listeners. That seems like 
such great advice for people who maybe are struggling to help their families understand their decisions around mm. um, non-monogamy or around being gay or gender fluid. Um, this idea that you it's really not the best use of your energy to try to change people's mind about sexuality. Yeah, maybe it's just about stating where you're at, you know, because I, I think like I hope people can change their mind. I know that my mind has been has been changed. But yeah, I didn't have someone sitting me down saying this is how it should be. You know, it's like mm. I just went through living it and that's what's changed my my mind. But it started with you, Chris, honestly, which was I'm so appreciative of that because my life is and how I go through my love and relationships, regardless if it's uh, monogamous or not, has been shifted in a very significant way because of writing Sex at Dawn. Well, thanks. I, I Again, I, I didn't intend that, you know? <laughs> I had no idea <laughs> that it was going to become that kind of a thing. I was just, you know, for me, it was just like I had stumbled upon something that seemed really interesting and important. And the more I looked into it, the more, the clearer it became to me. And I thought, well, this just needs to be out there. People need to know this, uh, that we've been lied to about um, the nature of our, our own sexuality. And I never, I, I never thought the book would like start any kind of a movement or, you know, or even really make people change their lives necessarily. I just wanted them to be able to forgive themselves for, for how difficult monogamy is, you know? Um, and also like yeah. getting back to your earlier but point, which go ahead. Uh, oh, no, no, no. I was just saying, but that's like a really big thing for people to be able to forgive themselves for how challenging monogamy is. I mean, that goes deep. Yeah. And I so think deep. It, yeah. And anytime you're writing a book, um, in which you are giving people permission and reframing for them that they're what felt like their deepest, darkest secrets secrets and weirdness is actually normal. And then you use science to say, it's not just me being nice and trying to make you feel better. Wow. You really start a fire. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I credit Dan Savage really with starting the fire. You know, I feel like maybe I, I like piled up some wood, but he lit it. And, and I think he also, you know, his presence in American society is so important and, just sort of amazing that here's a guy with, you know, no real scientific training or fame or anything who just through his intelligence and compassion and sense of humor and, uh, you know, that he was able to build up a following of millions of people who really, really trust him. And so and when what he, about how he started so long ago, right? I know. Started, yeah. interrupt. He started, he started Savage Love. I remember reading it in the Village Voice 30 years ago, right? Me too. Yeah. It, he started at The Onion and then uh, that got uh, syndicated. Yeah. I remember, do you remember like every letter to him started, Hey, faggot? That, that was his right? tag. Yeah. Yes. Oh my gosh. That, <laughs> And he will talk about haters. I mean, so he really pushed not just um, the idea of being gay as a mainstream um, 
part of humanity that everybody should deal with and accept. But he was layering on non-monogamy too, right? Well, yeah, because it's part of gay culture, you know, that gay male culture has been much more accepting of uh, a sort of sexual freedom within uh, an intimate relationship than heterosexual culture has been. And so I, I feel like when we wrote Sex at Dawn as a heterosexual couple, and then Dan Savage was like, you know, hey, people, you need to read this. This is what I've been saying for 20 or 30 years now, but here's some science. That was a really powerful combination. And I don't know what would have really, happened if, yeah. he, if he hadn't been there, you know? I think you would have touched a nerve no matter what, Chris, but I think that he, his imprimatur is really powerful. And, um, you know, back to that point about science, um, but it was incredible to see after so many years how the fire got lit. And like to your point about, I always say that gay men um, gentrified consensual non-monogamy for straight people the way they gentrified, you know, the Upper West Side and San Francisco. <laughs> it's like we straight people owe gay men in particular uh, so, so very much. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, if we're going to close the orgasm gap between men and women, we're really going to find ourselves very indebted to lesbians as well. Um, I've always said if I, if I were going to have sex with a gay man, Dan Savage is number one. <laughs> Oh my God. If I were going to have sex with a gay man, can we have a time machine? Because if I were going to have sex with a gay man, if I can't have a time machine, it's Dan Savage. But if I can have a time machine, the gay man I want to have sex with is Oscar Wilde. Oh, that would be fun. Okay. But he'd never shut up. Right? You know? Just, well, but I like that. I like chatty sex. Yeah. Okay, well then there you go. It's perfect. George Wait, Michael George Michael's my my time machine. Oh. I have to really think about it. But I mean, I feel like there's so many attractive gay men out there. Actually, Dan Savage just posted a selfie like yesterday, the day before. Yeah. I was like, oh shit. I saw that. It was Whoa. it was really hot. Yeah. Yeah, I always joke. He's with, not even with, kidding. No, and he I I joked with Dan about like uh you know how great it is if you're a gay man, you go to the gym, you, like there's a chance you're gonna have sex in the locker room, you know, or at least a lot of heavy flirting. <laughs> For I mean, if I yeah, if I, I mean, went to the gym thinking I might have sex, I'd be as pumped up as Dan is. Oh my god, that's such a good point. <laughs> I would such enjoy a good reason. I wouldn't enjoy going to the gym much more often. Yeah. Yeah, I and mean, yeah. Spas are like a very popular place for gay men to have sex and get blowjobs. Hey, by the way, spas are increasingly a popular place, according to my um, information, uh, which is anecdotal. Increasingly, women are feeling pretty good about getting massages with happy endings. Yeah, I mean, I have no issue with it. I haven't gotten one, but I mean, sign me up. Yeah. For Untrue, I interviewed a lot of different women and also um, experts, and but I also interviewed people, including massage therapists, physical therapists, and they told me, oh, hell yes, um, we have women who come to us and want you know, release, they want an orgasm at the end of their massage. And a couple of massage therapists that I talked to had established a niche like that. 
that they were the massage therapists um, that the women that I spoke to knew um, they could count on for a good orgasm. Male or female? More of that, please. One was a male massage therapist and one was a woman. Um, And they were very busy doing it. And I, you know, there are sex researchers who have studied women as consumers of transactional sex. And they say that, um, you know, in contexts where they say the higher a woman's income, the more likely she is to have attitudes like a heterosexual man about um, uh, transactional sex. But also maybe the more she's likely to be like a gay man at the gym, right? Like, let's have more of that. More women going to the gym and hooking up. Well, not right now. I was going to say, well, we got to be able to go to the gym first. (laughs) Good Lord. Okay. You know what? The state of civilization right now brings us so beautifully to uh, civilize to death. I mean, you're known for sex at dawn. It's going to follow you and dog you forever or, you know, lift you up forever because it's such a great book. But uh, civilized to death, we really have to um, talk about this book because this is your second I think like paradigm shifting book for people and you know, you've really, you have, you start with a position that will surprise a lot of people. And I think help people understand their lives and their unhappiness in a new way. Can you talk about, um, you know, how you came to write civilized to death? What was, going on that made you need to tell this story after you had done Sex at Dawn, Chris? Well, there was a section in Sex at Dawn uh, in the middle, a sort of brief section, I think it's 40 or 50 pages, where uh, we said, you know, we're just going to turn away from sex for a while now and talk about other aspects of hunter-gatherer life, because, you know, it, it seems like you can't just talk about one part of uh, a social system without discussing how it r- sort of uh, ripples out into other areas, right? So, for example, if if it's yeah. a society's not uh, strictly uh, monogamous in terms of sexuality, then the question is, well, then who raises the kids? And, okay, so we got to talk about how kids are raised, and then, well, uh, you know, if kids are raised communally, then w- what's going on with property and ownership? And you know, so all these. One thing leads to another. So we wanted to just sort of do a quick survey of what hunter-gatherer life was like um, before moving on to the third section, which is more about sort of uh, contemporary applications and the war on masturbation and, you know, the war on uh, sort of dismissal of female sexuality in the 19th and 20th century. And um, so I did that and... It felt like there's so much more here. You know, this is, I know this book's about sex, but there's so much more to be said about this. And a lot of the feedback that I got from readers confirmed that there was an interest in that. A lot of people were like, you know, the sex stuff was really interesting, but that thing in the middle, you know, about other parts of hunter gatherer life was fascinating. And so I thought, well, this could be a follow up. Um, which would be intellectually interesting for me. I had other ideas for follow-up books that would have been easier to write and more sort of sex-related, mm-hmm. 
But every literary mm-hmm. agent I spoke to and editors I spoke to, they all said, well, if you write another sex book, then you're going to be the sex guy. Like, that's it for life. You're going to be the sex right. guy. Right. Is this what you want? Mm-hmm. Right. Is that you want to be the, you know, whatever, the modern day Kinsey or whatever. And uh, but if you write another idea book, then you can write whatever you want from now on, because then you're like, OK, like, let's look at this idea. Let's look at another idea. And um, everybody was most interested in the pitch for Civilized to Death. So I I felt like it wasn't really what I wanted to do because it's another huge homework assignment, as you guys know. You <laughs> That's know, nonfiction. Writing. Yeah. Book report. Book report. Right. Giant book report. Um, but Fuck. It, it did feel important and it felt, um, you know, the same motivation uh, uh, as Sex at Dawn in that people are suffering needlessly because they've been told a story that's false about who they are, about what kind of animal they are. And this neo-Hobbesian story that man is a wolf to man and life before the state was nasty, brutish, and short, this has bothered me forever, you know? Um, because A, it's yeah. not true, and B, it's used to justify this overbearing um authoritarian institutional control of our lives. Um, you know, if the state pulls you, you away, know, we'll, yeah, go ahead. Well, I just, I didn't, I don't want to break your flow. Well, but that, I wanted I mean, there, to say that. We, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, sorry, Chris. I always um, do that. I always do this to Chris Ryan. Well, not <laughs> when we're in. Realized that I always, when we're in person, it's easier. It's these, uh, I've just started doing on my own podcast, just started doing remote interviews. It's really hard to keep the it's flow. It's so challenging. Tricky. Yeah. All right, right. I just wanted you to give you a break from having to talk to tell our listeners who might not know the context here that you're talking about how we have been taught that our evolutionary origins were in competition and violence, especially by the chimp people. But when we look at traditional hunter-gatherer societies, what we see is that they're basically radically egalitarian, right? There aren't the same notions of property that we have. Uh, Relationships between men and women are much more gender equal. Often an arrangement called cooperative breeding prevails in which um, people have sex uh, with multiple partners and raise offspring multiply. And Chris, you're saying this is not the narrative that people are familiar with. Right. The narrative that most people are familiar with is, can be sort of traced back to Thomas Hobbes, who said in 1651, I think, he wrote, uh, Life Before the State was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And of course, Thomas Hobbes was not an anthropologist. There were no anthropologists. He had never been out of Europe. He had no idea what life was like in non-civilized societies. And his life was one of extreme brutality. There were constant wars going on in Europe in his lifetime, Um, pestilence and, and just all sorts of nastiness. So he basically did what a lot of us do. You say, okay, my life sucks, but at least it's better than theirs, you know? And so that can be expressed as racism or classism or, or in this case, a sort of a historical 
presentism, saying that the present is so much better than the past. At least I have that, you know. Um, and it's it's based on nothing, no knowledge, no science, nothing. And the problem is that it's very sort of self-congratulatory. It supports the status quo. And so it's become a very powerful idea. And you have people like Matt Ridley and Steven Pinker and Richard Dawkins who support this idea that, you know, this progress, uh, I call it the uh, the narrative of perpetual progress, this idea that things are always getting better and better and better. And so, of course, this must be the best time to be alive because things are always getting better. There's no scientific ah. reason to believe that. And Can what, I read what, part? I want to, yeah, I want to read part yeah. of Civilized to Death in which you say that so well. Will you indulge me? Sure. Here's what Chris writes in toward the beginning of Civilized to Death, uh, which is such an upending kind of subversive uh, reframing of how we think about ourselves. Whether the wonders of our age are worth their exorbitant cost is a question that each of us must ultimately answer for ourselves. But before we can begin to answer such a crucial question, we must first cut through the veil of pro-progress propaganda to which we've been subjected for centuries in order to do two things. Get a fuller conception of civilization that includes its costs and its victims, and think hard about how much meaning and fulfillment modern wonders actually bring to our lives. If everything's so amazing, why are so many of us so profoundly unhappy? That to me mm-hmm. is like the brilliant kernel of civilized to death. Yeah, that's yeah. super interesting. That's like a, I, I love, I love hearing that. <laughs> it really gets my, like, peels back the layers and the shadows from like my eyes. <laughs> and when you think about somebody like Steven Pinker, who many of us are very familiar with his work, even if we don't know exactly what it is. I mean, lately his um, real idea that he wants to get out all the time is no, things are really great. Um, for example, we've reduced um, mortality right? Or um, no, people people say that they're happy. Um, and on what many people believe is a very flimsy data basis, asserting that, hold on, things are actually really great. And you are um, just stepping into this fight, Chris, and um, rallying a, a lot of data from different disciplines to really parse it. And I think that one of the things that makes you such a change maker is you're saying life got better for whom, which, which people are really profiting from this and who's really profiting from this motive. Maybe like um, hedge fund douchebags who can say, no, no, no. Like what I'm doing is natural. Me, me gathering up all the resources and keeping them to myself. This is natural. Yeah. I I think Darwin has been co-opted for that specific argument um, since shortly after he published On the Origin of Species. Um, I think I mentioned in Civilized to Death that Andrew Carnegie, who was you know one of the first billionaires um, of his age or of any age, uh, built a bunch of libraries in the Northeast United States 
And the one book that he insisted had to be in every one of those libraries was on the origin of species because he explicitly felt that it justified his existence. He was a the fittest, and so therefore he had the most resources. He hoarded. And, you know, when you look at how hunter-gatherers actually live, you see, no, they don't hoard. That's actually the worst thing you can do as a hunter-gatherer. There's this beautiful expression um, from Africa that Casilda told me years ago. Um, the best place to store extra food is in your friend's stomach. You know, and I think that oh, sort of oh, wow. goes back to our origin as a species. That That's how we survived is by taking care of one another by being cooperative and co-de- you know, interdependent, um, not by hoarding, not by gathering resources and excluding other people. Um, and so, again, similar to the origins of Sex at Dawn, the origins of this book were that I felt that people are suffering because of a false um, narrative about who we are. And if we could correct the narrative, it opens up possibilities to live differently and to find happiness and meaning and satisfaction in our lives in ways that would have been impossible working from the old narrative. Right. And I think I can't help but, you know, create some parallels within what's going on today. You know, we see with the whole COVID-19 Uh, pandemic going on. We see people going to the stores and buying up everything and hoarding all of this. It's the complete opposite of that um, quote that you said from Casilda. It's just so, it's really interesting that we are talking about this while everything that's happening in our world is going on. And you know, sometimes with this, it's a matter of perspective when you are telling yourself a story about what's natural, which is what I think is so powerful about sex at dawn and civilized to death. If you're telling yourself that the, the natural um, human behavior is competition, right? Which is what Richard Rangham would have us believe and what um, maybe Irvin DeBoer, although I think he was a great anthropologist in a lot of ways um, might have us believe that, you know, our evolutionary origins are in competition and conflict. You will see that, right? That's what will stand out to you when you go to the IGA in Sag Harbor, which is where I am and the cupboards are bare and somebody's reaching across you. Um, But if you educate yourself um, to the point of view that most anthropologists believe now Right, which is that uh, cooperation and affiliative behavior were as important in our evolutionary prehistory as conflict, for sure, if not a lot more. Then you kind of see um, cooperative and affiliative behavior. And I think it's so powerful, Chris, that you're helping us assert um, that cooperative behavior, including cooperative breeding and non monogamy, but also just being affiliative and generous um, is as much part of the arc of humanness um, as this competitive paradigm. Yeah. I think it can help m- us get through now. Or more so. You know, I, I, I'm sure we yeah. do see people, you know, buying up all the toilet paper or whatever in the stores. But what we don't see is all the people who are delivering food to their elderly family and neighbors, uh, the people who are, you know, taking care of other people quietly, the nurses and doctors who are going to work, even though they don't even have face masks and they don't have the right protective gear, risking their lives to take care of strangers 
when they could just call in sick if they wanted to very easily. Um, you know, we are surrounded by this behavior, this self-sacrificing, um, taking care of the tribe kind of behavior. And yet it's obscured because of this narrative of hoarding and, and selfishness and exclu- exclusion. Um, and so, yeah, as you say, Wednesday, if you change the narrative, if you change the story that sort of informs your perspective, then you start to see things very differently. One of the examples that you get into um, at Sex at Dawn, in Sex at Dawn and that I also used in Untrue was one of the ways that in untouched hunter-gatherer societies, people keep things egalitarian. It's work to destroy um, hierarchy every day. And one of the ways people do this um, who live in non-hierarchical societies is through um, gift giving and my favorite thing, object demands. Um, so Whitney, I would just, um, walk up to you and Chris, FYI, Whitney has this Gucci bag that I really covet. And (laughs) in a traditional hunter gatherer society, uh, I would walk up to you and I would say, Whitney, give me your bag. And you would have no, no choice but to say, okay, here it is. So when people go on to me about how it's natural that they're hoarding resources, which happens to me a lot because I study the behaviors of very rich people um, sometimes, um, I like to tell them, no, if we were living the life that humans evolved to live right now, I would say, give me the keys to your Porsche 911 and you would have no choice but to give me those keys and to give me your car. And and why is that exactly? Well, I like I like my Gucci bag. <laughs> you like your Gucci bag. I would ha- I would have to give you something in return. And okay. at the, and at the same time another thing that would be going on is when somebody uh killed a diker, right? Or something to eat everybody would know exactly who the hunter was who got the diker or who the woman was who gathered all the great Monogo nuts. But they would say, we don't know who caught this diker. Um, it's for everybody. They, mm. in, in traditional societies without hierarchies, they actually do work to keep the hierarchy um, out of their lives. So um, when I was reading Civilized to Death, Chris, I couldn't help but think about just how wrong people are about how natural it is and how funny it would be <laughs> if we started um, trying trying to push back against it um, and how hard it would be to undo it. What do you think, you know, what do you think we can actually change in terms of getting people to understand that affiliative behavior, non-monogamy, generosity um, are deep, in us? How do we get people to act on that and feel it and understand it? How do we shift the narrative? Well, I, th- I think there are two opportunities that come to mind right now. One is the recognition that um, in the modern world with the kind of population density that we have and the rapid transportation that we have, if anyone's sick, all of us are vulnerable. And so we're living that right now in our little individual houses um, separated from people because of that fact that contagion 
involves everyone and unites us. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's absurd that the United States doesn't have free health care for everyone. I, you know, I, I'm mm. totally in agreement with Bernie Sanders on this. And, uh, you know, maybe this finally becoming clear to people that you need to take care of everyone to some extent or we're all vulnerable. The whole system is vulnerable. And I think we're seeing that we're going to have 20, 25 percent unemployment in the next few months. The whole system is fractured right now. So. I'm hoping that when we pick up the pieces and try to reassemble something, that we'll reassemble it in a way that acknowledges that we need to take care of each other. There's no benefit to Jeff Bezos of having however many billions of dollars he has. Anyone can get by on $1 billion, right? There's no, it's absurd that we allow this to happen, um, that this accumulation of wealth is allowed to happen and meanwhile, people are sleeping in the streets and can't go to a doctor or a dentist. It, it just makes no sense because, you know, if Jeff Bezos were seven billion times as happy as the average Amazon worker, then I'd say, great, but he isn't. That's the thing. And it, it's something I get into in Civilized to Death that above a certain amount of money per year, your happiness doesn't actually increase with income. This is part of the false narrative that has people running on these rat wheels trying to make more and more money, even though it's not actually making them happier. And so we can... This, l- yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that there, there are no winners. That's the thing I... I sort of it was sort of a novel argument that I was trying to make in Civilized to Death. The rich people aren't actually any happier than the rest of us. That's the problem. And that's part of the false this narrative. This is so important. Yeah. This is and so, so important if we can convince, because Americans are so, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I just wanted to say this is such an important myth to dispel. We know that if you control for poverty, um, and if you control for you know having the most basic access to health, we're talking about as long as you can put food on the table and you're not worried that your kids are going to get really sick because you can't take them to the doctor after you control for absolute poverty and a minimum level of well-being. We know from the data that money does not make people happier. And I love that that's one of the core arguments that you make because you're really denuding people of one of the main motivators um, that is actually making them miserable, right? Which is acquiring more money. And then this point you make, Chris, about healthcare and and how interconnected we are. Um, I remember in Freakonomics, Stephen Dubner making the point that the countries where uh, height is going down, um, height is one of the best metrics of overall health, like height in the aggregate of a country. And in the United States, height has been consistently going down for several decades now, Uh, whereas height in certain other countries has been consistently going up in the aggregate. And what they found through their Freakonomics crunch um, was that Height is going down in the United States because we have such huge income inequality, which means disparities in access to health and quality of health care. 
And um, so anywhere where height is going up, you see, it's not that they have the greatest health care. It's that everybody has the same health care. Um, and I think that these two, uh, these two points about well-being are so linked to this idea about, you know, money making us happier or not. Money, you're saying, leads to income inequality, which leads to not just emotional unhappiness, but like physically, physically impacting us. Can you say more about that, Chris, the physical impact of being civilized? Sure, sure. And and the, the point to make there is not only that the poor are uh, victims of this system, but the wealthy are as well. Um, the one thing, one, one of the things that jumped out when I was doing the research for this book is that the single factor that's most predictive of uh, happiness, self-reported happiness in life, and also longevity is not how what your diet is. It's not your exercise patterns. It's not your alcohol or tobacco use. It's whether or not you feel that you are part of a loving um, community. If you feel that you're part of a community that takes care of each other, that's what predicts how long and how happy your life will be more than any other single factor. So what happens with great wealth disparity is you fracture that sense of community, right? You build walls around your house. If you're very wealthy, you have bullet. I remember years ago, Casilda and I were living in Barcelona and we were considering moving to Brazil because, um, as a Portuguese doctor, um, she could have made a lot of money in Brazil. And we were talking to some Brazilian doctors and they were talking about how the great demand there was for Portuguese doctors and all this. And I said, so what, what, what are the downsides? And they're like, well, you know, you have to like watch out for yourself. And I said, what do you mean? And they're like, well, you know, you're going to have barbed wire walls around your house. You're going to have bulletproof glass in your cars and you're going to want to travel with an armed guard at all times. <laughs> and I was like, mm. what? Because that's... <laughs> oh, yay. <laughs> yeah. That's what it means to have a lot of money in the context of a lot of poverty, right? And that's where we're headed in the United States. So, you know, being part of a community makes us happy. And having great wealth disparity breaks, fractures that community, makes you suspicious of people. Why do they really want to hang out? Is it because I have lots of money or because they actually like me? You know, what, what do people want from me? I, all three of us have, you know, a foot in a world where of famous people and wealthy people. We've all seen this, I'm sure. It, it, it makes it, it makes life very difficult. And in the book, I, in Civilized to Death, I told the story about the first time I went to India and I was sitting in a restaurant and there were these children sort of staring at my food and how, you know, that was annoying and, and it made me uncomfortable. And then the waiter came and shooed the kids away. And like, I've never forgotten that feeling of, fuck, this is, this is really messed up and I'm on the winning side of it, but it hurts me. It's not good for me. And uh, so I had to develop some sort of emotional scar tissue, you know, to ignore that and enjoy my, you know, trip through India. Um, and I, th I think that on a larger scale, that's happening 
uh, for a lot of people. A lot of wealthy people are, you know, their nature, because we evolved as uh, cooperative, taking care of one another, their nature is telling them, help these people. But the situation is so messed up. How can you? What do you do? Like, you can't, there's no system by which you can take care of everyone. And so that's why the government needs to step in and tax people above a certain limit and then, you know, pull that money back into the common uh, community. Um, But anyway, as far as like the physical effects of civilization that you asked about Wednesday, one of the great uh, myths of the modern world is that we're much healthier than hunter-gatherers were. You know, people will say to me, well, you know, uh, I would have died as a hunter-gatherer because I had impacted wisdom teeth and there were no dentists then. Or, you know, like I I had diabetes and there was no diabetes medication. But the fact is that hunter-gatherers didn't have diabetes. They didn't have most forms of cancer. (laughs) Right. (laughs) They didn't have heart disease. They didn't have dental problems the way we do. Like all... Almost all of the things that civilization claims to save us from are actually problems that are created by civilization itself. This is one of the great paradoxes that you point out in Civilized to Death. You say, yes, vaccines are great. And by the way, I'm totally pro-vaccine and totally pro-science and we need them. But you point out, for example, well, you know, when we weren't so proximate, and we didn't have so many diseases of proximity that we created through, you know, waste and agriculture, uh, we wouldn't have needed them. So I love this point in Sex at Dawn, uh, I'm sorry, in, in Civilized to Death, that by civilizing ourselves, we created the need to have these fixes, right? Yeah, we. You know, the image I use in the book is I say, you know, if you lit my house on fire, don't expect me to be grateful when you show up with a bucket of water an hour later. And that's more or less <laughs> what civilization's so done. Good. Civilization so creates good. all these problems, creates a sedentary lifestyle, creates malnutrition. So, you know, a third of the kids in the world are obese and another third of them are undernourished. Um you know, it's a mess. And then comes to us and says, oh, but look, we've got, you know, whatever vitamin fortified choco bits that you can eat in the morning. And, you know, well, why, (laughs) why do we need vitamin fortified sugar in order to survive? You know, why do we need, so we have a sedentary lifestyle, but look, we've got this machine you can buy and you can, you know, use at home. It's a stationary bicycle. Like it's, so much of our modern lives <laughs> is like partial compensation for what's been stolen from us. And Chris, is there anything that we can do about this? Or is that, do you see that shifting at all? Will that gap collapse at some point? Or is that, and you know, I even think about what the whole COVID thing going on now, you're even talking about the longevity um, of our lives and the wellness of our lives being, you know, um, a part of how close our community is. And now a lot of that is starting to relax, or, but at the same time, we're not being able to be in the same area or be around each other. Like, how is that affecting, how is that going to affect our happiness and longevity? Really good question. Um, I, and I don't have an answer, but I cert- I hope that what is happening right now is that 
people are looking at their lives and saying, what really matters here? Like this is a sort of enforced Mm -hmm. pause that we're all taking and we're all stepping back and saying, okay, when I go back to normal, how much of that normal do I really want? So for example, on a purely economic level, we might say, you know, you know, I don't really miss not going to Starbucks every morning and spending 10 bucks on my super frappuccino. I, I don't mind making myself coffee at home. I should save that 10 bucks. Maybe I can use that 10 bucks a week or a day that I've been spending and I can give it to somebody who needs help, you know, or I can invest it in something with longer term potential. So, I mean, that's a very sort of trivial example. But I know several people have lost their, I know a lot of people have lost their jobs in the last couple of weeks, right? And all Mm -hmm. of them, I'm talking about four or five people, all of them said, you know what, man, I hated that fucking job. I hated it, but I didn't have, I couldn't quit. But well, now it's gone. So I think there's a lot of that. A lot of people are going to be looking at their lives and saying, okay, do I really want to work to get back all the stuff that I had, all, how many of the friendships that have been on hold for the last couple of months, do I really want to reestablish? So I think there's Um, an opportunity for reassessment here that could be really positive. It's so important. And I think that one of the opportunities for reassessment is coming for people who thought they were so privileged. Um, I, I've heard from so many people. I'm out in the Hamptons. I know a lot of very privileged people out here. Um, And a lot of them are saying things like they're learning some of the hard lessons of civilized to death and they're feeling better. For example, there's a pandemic and everybody is panicking, but people are seeing, to your point, that they want to make coffee themselves, for example, or they're starting to appreciate, holy shit. I need to be nicer to my housekeeper and pay her more when she comes back here because this is really hard. Uh, Or they're saying, um, I didn't need 10 white V-neck t-shirts. My life is easier when I have one. And um, Chris, this reminds me of sort of an opposite point to civilize to death that, um, that brings your thesis home so clearly. I spent some time in Scandinavia um, not terribly long ago. And I noticed that, you know, I'm a New Yorker. I, I like Luke's like we're used to in New York. We have a hard scrabble. We have a lot of, there's a lot that's hard about being in New York. And then we sort of reward ourselves with luxury experiences, right? Like we want this super Luke spa. It's not good enough unless it's like amazing. We need these, um, like great sheets or whatever. We have to sort of We feel like we're on this hamster wheel and now we need these super luxurious rewards. Okay, so I went to Scandinavia and I noticed two things that made me think of your work, Chris. The first one was that everything around me in Scandinavia was beautiful in a basic way. The airports are beautiful. Um, The bathrooms in the airports are beautiful. There's simple, accessible design that when you're walking through it, it makes everybody feel happy. The second thing I noticed was that there are really, across Scandinavia, there are not luxury hotels in the way that Americans might be used to. What's considered a luxurious hotel is really quite basic. And it it hit me that both of these things 
are about um, there not being so much wealth disparity in these countries and about people having the baseline of knowing, you know, Scandinavia is known for there being a very strong um, governmental uh, support net, right? And so people walk around every day knowing that their basic needs for nutrition, um, education, um, and um, happiness on most levels. If they get cancer, you know, they're not going to need to be in a Luke's cancer facility. There's going to be a place to help them. If they lose their job, um, you know, they're not going to need a Luke's stockpile of money. There will be some support of them. And I was thinking about how the fact that there aren't really big luxury hotels and that all design is good speaks to just how improved our lives are uh, when there's not marked income disparity. And I had to ask myself as a New Yorker, what does it mean to give up luxury? Um, And luxury is really just the hallmark of inequality, isn't it? Yes. And it's also a con job. Luxury is for suckers. I'm sorry. You know, there's this line in in the book where I said, and I hope I don't offend anyone here, but I said, you know, a watch tells the time. A Rolex tells us you've got issues. You don't need, <laughs> you know, you don't. Nobody needs a fifteen thousand dollar watch. Why do you wear a fifteen thousand dollar watch? Because you want to show everybody that you've got money to to waste. And well, talk about why that's yeah. a con job. Spell out. Spell it out. Well, because I mean, I, I talk about it in terms of wine, right? I like I like red wine. And yeah, there's definitely a difference between, uh, you know, a $2 Trader Joe's bottle of, you know, whatever, and a $15 Rioja from Spain. I can taste the difference. It's significant and it's, it's, it's worth an extra 13 bucks. But I've had bottles of wine that cost 200, 300, $400. I can't tell the difference. There's no, there's this, the rule of diminishing returns. So yeah, there's a difference between a watch that costs you know a dollar fifty in Chinatown, and uh, you know a hundred and fifty dollar watch that is you know built to dive and you know keep good time and all that. But between that hundred and fifty dollar watch and a ten thousand dollar watch, it's all image. It's all posturing, and you know I think it's the same with everything. No, no offense, Whitney, to your handbag, but. Uh, you know, uh, what is it? Louis Vuitton <laughs> handbag. It is awesome. <laughs> I know, but I, and I'm that person too. That's like, yeah, give me that Rolex. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, well, that's because you're and from I love, Texas. I love, re- I and love I reframing that. <laughs> we have issues, but I think that Chris, one of the things you've done is you've helped us see that these things that we have framed as our issues um, are actually, you know, symptoms of being civilized to death. I mean, we have to believe in the profound, restorative, and rewarding qualities of luxury because we've deprived so many people of it. Is that right? Well, I don't know how direct the the correlation is between one person's wealth and another person's poverty. I, I don't. I'm not. I don't want to guilt trip anyone. In fact, I'm trying to do the opposite. Um, you know, when I talked about how wealth does not, in fact, lead to happiness, there's a section in Civilized to Death where I sort of joke about 
coming up with a new psychological term called RAS, which stands for rich asshole syndrome. And, you know, I, I try to <laughs> sort of invert the typical narrative, the typical narrative being that, you know, assholes become rich because they're willing to do things that good people aren't willing to do in order to get money. And I'm sure that happens to some extent, but what I was trying to, I was trying to defend the rich assholes in a sense by saying, the thing is when you're rich, you kind of have to be an asshole because you need to build up this psychological scar tissue because of the pain and the frustration that you actually can't help people the way you would like to. And that's a systemic problem. That's not a failing of an individual. And that's why I told the story about being in India. Like I did, I bought a bunch of samosas in the restaurant and I gave them to these kids. And within five seconds, there were probably, you know, 50 people around me with their hands out. It became a mob mm. scene. You can't do it. What are you going to do? If you're a, you know, a millionaire and you want to help people, what are you going to do? How are you going to do it? Are you going to drive down the street handing out money? You know, what, how are you going to address the issue in a lasting way? It's very hard. Um, and so, you know, what I'm trying to say with this is that it's, it's actually not, um, if we look at our nature as a species, what we see is that the thing, if you're feeling down, you're feeling depressed and life is empty, the thing that's get most likely to make you feel better is if you help someone else. And I'm not saying that in a, you know, you should be a better person sort of way. I'm saying from a selfish perspective, the thing that has been demonstrated to be most effective in making you feel better is helping another person. So, um, you know, if we bring our behavior into alignment with a more informed narrative of what sort of animal we are, it's not only better for the people you help, it's better for you because that's the animal that you are. Our ancestors survived by helping one another. See, you guys, that. yeah, we were made for cooperation. We were made for affiliative behavior. We were made for generosity. And mm -hmm. that groove is so deep that when you do it, it feels like going home almost, right? That's it. Um, we have no more time with you, but we want people to know how to find you. Tell us uh, where people can find you on social media. Uh, I'm that, that Chris Ryan on Instagram and Twitter. And that's my website, that Chris Ryan.com. And they'll, they'll see links to books and my podcast tangentially speaking and uh, yeah, all sorts of stuff. And, and if you have not read sex at dawn or civilized to death, if you've been living under a rock, which is understandable, I find them both to be life altering books and i just thank you so much for writing them chris yeah without a doubt i totally agree with that and i love that we ended on you know even if it's selfish if you're feeling a little bit down to go help somebody <laughs> i'm gonna do that today yeah Beautiful. and facetime somebody if you can't touch them see their face <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah there you go yeah. reach out to people who are isolated they really need you right now thank you chris thank you guys it was great talking with you both Super exciting news, you guys. 
I am hosting an all-women's retreat in Nosara, Costa Rica in May. I want you to go visit Revamp Retreats to get more information on that, but it's going to be absolutely amazing. It's in one of my favorite places in the world, Nosara, Costa Rica, and I'm hosting it with one of my best, best, best friends, Caitlin Howe. It's all about bringing a really cool group of girls together and women together to bond and share an amazing experience to grow and transform. And you know what? Have some fun while we're doing it. So check out Revamp Retreats and find out more information. Hope to see you there. Hey, we hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, it would help us a lot if you would leave a review. Yeah, leave a review, subscribe. We want to know how you guys felt about the episode. It really helps us out a lot to continue the success of the podcast and keep spreading our message.